This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello! Welcome to the Enron 2 episode of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week in which the guy who was in charge of dealing with bankrupt Enron then became the guy who is now in charge of dealing with bankrupt FTX. His letter came out this week, and I am going to talk about it. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I am going to talk about it with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And also Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. We're going to talk about all of the other parallels, Lehman Brothers, WeWork, Uber, I don't know, Theranos, lots of parallels in terms of business history of businesses going bust and trying to wonder, like, what were the implications of that? And what could the implications of the FTX collapse be? We are going to talk about Joan Didion and her estate sale. Uh, we have a slate plus on Elon Musk and the way he's tweeting all of his CEO decisions. Is that a good idea? <laughs> Find out <laughs> on Slate Money. Okay, so for the second week running, we have to talk about FTX and SBF because there has been so much more news than we had last week. And I guess the place where we should start is probably the first day motion in bankruptcy court in Delaware, which didn't get filed on the first day like it normally does. It took about a week for John Ray, who's the new CEO of FTX, to even file the motion saying, like, this is why we're bust. And the TLDR is basically because it was a complete shit show. There was no accounting. There was no record keeping. Um, money just disappeared. No one knows where the money is. Um, and, you know, this is the guy who was in charge of Enron. And he's like, Enron doesn't even come close to how much of a shit show FTX is. Right. He said, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls. Devastating. Yeah, I don't think I, I fully internalized how bad it was until I saw the quote unquote balance sheet that the FT published from SBF. Uh, <laughs> that is, is not a balance sheet. It's, it's something, but it's... It, it was an Excel spreadsheet with some numbers scribbled on it and a couple of like notes to self. And yeah, and that was what he was going out to potential rescuers with saying, hey, you know, we have $8 billion worth of magic beans, so can you lend against them? And everyone was like, no, we can't. And where's the actual money that people put in? Um, but then the other thing we should mention was this absolutely wild interview that SBF gave to Kelsey Piper of Fox, where he was like, yeah, basically, we kind of didn't have a bank account for FDX. <laughs> so people would eat wire money to our hedge fund and then we never really kept track of it. And then the money just kind of disappeared. And I don't know, shrug. You know, you're like, what? <laughs> he was basically like the, the customer deposits were just in this big pile of money and we didn't segregate them. And we don't know what was what. And some of it went to Alameda. And who knows? What we did learn is that $1 billion that Sam Bankman freed, you know, the guy who's like, I can live on $60,000 a year and my job is to just give away all of my wealth, that he took a personal $1 billion loan from Alameda. That's just astonishing. I guess my question is now, as all of this becomes untangled, is how much of this was sloppy incompetence? Because it does seem clear that there was sloppy incompetence happening. There, there, That's there what John was Ray a, has said. a level of sloppy incompetence that was unprecedented in, you know, multi-billion-dollar companies. I think this is we we can say relatively safely that never has a multi-billion-dollar company been run this sort of sloppily and incompetently. Partly because most multi-billion dollars, most multi-billion-dollar companies get that way by like you know growing and and you know, evolving and developing layers of management and stuff. And FTX just never did that. Right. And so we know that there was incompetence and sloppiness. But then the other question is, how much was self-dealing, fraud? How nefarious was this? That's the question I have. 
Well, when you're dealing with other people's money, which is what they were doing, you know, other people were exchanging on FTX, other people were, um, you know, investing money in FTX equity and all of that kind of stuff, then sloppiness is fraud. Mm. Like, you know, the sloppiness is the fraud. Um, I guess you can ask, you know, to what degree was it malign intent and to what degree was it just like oh shit we thought we were on top of it and we turned out not to be but they didn't even really think they were on top of it and you know as as matt levine pointed out in his column like you know on one level apparently there were only like four or five people who knew about the the secret transfers between ftx and alameda but on the other on another level like everyone who worked there knew how just batshit it was, how there was no HR department, no real accounting department, how, you know, expenses would be approved by emoji and that kind of thing. No board oversight, apparently. Well, there was no board. There was a, a an interview with, a, or it wasn't an interview, it was a profile on Sequoia's site with SBF in the early days of their funding that was just completely, you know, uh, fawning. And uh, the the person who wrote it just talked about uh, SBF having this kind of magic aura that everybody wanted to be around. And they took the piece down because in retrospect, it, it's, it looks awful. But when you consider that that's, that's a big part of how the thing got funded in the first place is just, you know, funding entrepreneurs off of vibes, it's not totally surprising that, you know, he ended up where where he ended up, I think. Well, I mean, let's be clear about this. That piece was published in September. It wasn't published yeah. a long time ago. It published pretty recently. And Sequoia, you know, were funding a very fast-growing company, which was making, you know, 40% profit margins on 100% growth on $250 million of revenue or whatever. Like, there were real, there was real money in there. And there was, um, you know, the business model made sense. Now, obviously, they didn't require audited income statements and balance sheets because there were no audited income statements and balance sheets. And obviously, with hindsight, they should have done. Um, but what they thought was that they were funding like a genuine, normal business. And I think on some level, they just kind of assumed that because he had so much respect on Capitol Hill, because he had all of these, as you say, like, you know, fawning coverage in the press and all the rest of it, that he wouldn't just... Steal money be, from people and use it to invest stealing, in other stuff. Right, exactly. Like <laughs> that I, is what I we're think, talking about. To be clear, I, I think yes. the idea that it was a complete fraud probably just didn't occur to them because right. he felt. And and this is this is something that he went on to say in that amazing Vox interview was that the way that he persuaded people that he wasn't a complete fraud was by using a shibboleth. And I love this word. It's one of my favorite words. And a shibboleth is basically a word which basically shows that you're part of the in crowd. Um, and if you pick your shibboleths correctly, then people will trust you. And the shibboleth that he used was this thing called effective altruism. And he talked so much about effective altruism that people trusted him because he used the right words. And then he came out to Vox and said, yeah, I didn't actually necessarily believe in any of it, but it was a great way of getting people to trust me. Did people trust him because of his stance on philanthropy or did they trust him because it looked like this company was making tons of money? Like people, you cannot discount people's willingness to fall for someone who says or is a billionaire and engender that person with sort of trust or um, a belief that they're a genius or whatever. As soon as you have, you cross that billionaire line, you've su suddenly gotten yourself credibility. Right. And, and one of the interesting things about SBF is that he was that rare, you know, entrepreneurial Silicon Valley billionaire type who was making tons of money, at least ostensibly, mm. you know, according to the accounts that he was showing Sequoia. Um, if you look at most um, high-flying Silicon Valley billionaire types, whether it's, you know, Adam Newman or Travis Kalanick or Elon Musk, you know, the way they become billionaires is by losing lots of money, mm -hmm. right? And they're like, we need lots of funding. Give us 
funding at ever increasing valuations. I own a percentage of the company, so I'm a billionaire on paper. My company is losing money, but we are investing it all in payroll and growth and blah, blah, blah. And then the company will be worth lots of money in the future. Uh, so FTX was weirdly was a weird outlier in that respect in that he was SBF was coming out and basically saying I'm already profitable you know mm-hmm. and I'm making billions of dollars on my own without you and do you want like in on this mm-hmm. I guess no one stopped to ask well why do you need the money then because he's stealing it <laughs> <laughs> I mean I don't to be sure I think he, he also went to he also went to great lengths to kind of brand himself as as somebody who wasn't a materialist you know he yeah. he said he could live on 60k a year he was sleeping on a beanbag in the office he was sleeping on a beanbag in his 40 million dollar Bahamian <laughs> apartment I mean like, this is the other thing like he had a massive portfolio of Bahamas real estate we are pretty sure as I say he also borrowed personally $1 billion from Alameda Research, his his hedge fund. Now, you know, that's a billion dollars that he didn't spend on, like, yachts. It was a billion dollars that he spent on, you know, venture investments and that kind of stuff. But still, he was living a very glamorous life. It's a bit unclear whether he was flying commercial or private. I haven't quite been able to get to the bottom of that one. But he was certainly palling around on stage with Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. And you know, he was certainly getting the kind of respect from the world, you know, the magazine covers, the conferences, and all the rest of it, um, that w- were the kind of things that he would buy if those things were things you could buy. Yeah, and, you know, to go back to the effective altruism point, you know, that that was a little bit of a cover for um, anything that he wanted to do that seemed a little bonkers. He could sort of frame it as long-termism. Um, or maybe we should explain what effective yeah. altruism is. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, maybe. So, okay, so like we, we've talked a little bit about this on, on the podcast before, and I'm sure we will again, but broadly the idea behind effective altruism is the idea that you can go out and make the world a better place by, you know, say going to medical school and becoming a doctor and learning how to save people's lives and then jetting off to Uganda and saving people's lives. And you'll be like, great, I have saved lives. That's that's me being, you know, behaving ethically. Or alternatively, you could do good in the world by, you know, going to business school, going to a hedge fund, take, making a billion dollars, and then giving that billion dollars to an organization which can save lives at a rate of $5,000 a life. And then, boom, you've saved, you know, 20,000 lives rather than one life. And so, like, that's 20,000 times better to yeah. do that. And this, this seems like a very self-serving rationale for hoarding absurd amounts of wealth. Well, no, it's, it's, it's a rationale for giving away lots of wealth. It's, it's certainly not a rationale for hoarding it, right? There's nothing in the EA which says you should hoard anything. Yeah, but you have to accumulate it. It's a, yeah, a rationale for it. Earning and accumulating an unreasonable so so there's earn to get so, so there's two different there's two different ways of looking at this right one is you know you work for Jane Street Capital which is this big hedge fund that um, SBF used to work for and they pay you lots of money because you you're, you know you make lots of money at your job and then what you do is you just give away that money as soon as you make it and you're living on your $60,000 a year or whatever it is. There is nothing in EA which says you should hoard or retain any of that money. The alternative is that rather than maximizing your income, you try and maximize your wealth accumulation. And so what you do then is you start investing money in something like, you know, I'm starting a company called FTX or I'm going to sponsor a sports arena in Miami because somehow that's going to be plus EV you know plus expected value and the amount of money I get back from sponsoring that arena is going to be greater than the amount I spend on sponsoring the arena so then in the long term that's going to be better for saving lives down the road and that's where EA gets a little bit dubious because at that point you're you know you're making a trade-off you're like do I spend this money now on saving lives, or do I hold on to it and try and invest it and make it even bigger and then use that bigger amount to save lives? And the way that SBF thought about this, which was very explicit, and he said this in interview after interview, was basically, if I have like positive expected value to my investments, I should always, because he has this, 
linear utility function, which we won't go into. But um, I will always take that bet, even if the investments only have like a 1% chance of paying off. So if I have a 99% chance of going to zero, but I have a 1% chance of making $5 trillion, I will take that 1% chance. And so 99% of the time, I will go to zero. But in the grand scheme of things, I am I am making money in, in some kind of like, if I look at all of the 100 possible universes that I'm in or something, it all becomes very weird and theoretical. And I think, honestly, um, he has wound up basically doing possibly possibly mortal damage to the entire EA um, program because like people realize now that it just winds up in these absurd outcomes. Is that a bad thing? I mean, when I hear about effective altruism, and I think this is the second time, or honestly, the third time, Felix, that you've had to explain it to me. I think this is dumb. <laughs> people should do good in the world themselves. They shouldn't excuse doing bad, which often is what they wind up doing to accumulate billions of dollars. No, by I mean, so, so to be very, the road, they're going to give. Yeah, it all away. but that's that's a little bit of a straw man, right? <laughs> so the 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 EA crowd is has always been very clear that this is not some kind of utilitarian um, ends justify the means thing. It, but right? it is. But no, no one never made that argument. But the argument is make a lot of money so you can give it away, and making a right. lot of money is typically. In, involves not really doing much good at all. In fact, often doing not good. So yeah, the ends justify the means. That's baked into that strategy. I don't see how it's not. In terms of isolated decision making, it is ends justify the means a lot of times because the the, the other premise of EA is that uh, you know you can actually evaluate what matters long term mm. versus you know short term costs. So if a few people die right now, it's fine if. You know, you're saving lives over the course of the next hundred years. And there's a kind of arrogance to that, I think. And there's a reason why it appeals to a lot of neo-reactionary types in, you know, Silicon Valley, because it presumes that you can have a class of elites who can determine all of these things and, and really evaluate on a top-down basis what's worth it and what isn't. It's kind of like how they manage their businesses by saying it's all about the future. Like, yeah, I'm not making money now, but I will be someday. Like, yeah, we're not changing the world now, but we will someday. Like, yeah, what we're doing now is important someday. It's like, just get in the now, guys. So so there's, there's a few different things to, to unpack here. The first thing is that um, long-termism and effective altruism are two different things. Like, long-termism is one flavor of effective altruism. There are other flavors of effective altruism which are not long-termist and are much more short-termist and saying, like, we just want to save the maximal number of lives that we can today. And an outfit like GiveWell would be a good example of that. And they do not do that kind of thing where they're like, it's okay if, you know, we could, if we fail to save a life today, as so long as we do manage to save three lives tomorrow, um, they, they, they generally reject that kind of thinking. So I think the damage to long-termism is greater than the damage to EA more generally here. So that's the first thing. The second thing, Emily, I think is just that if you come at EA with the, if you, if you come at this whole concept with the idea that making money is intrinsically harmful, um, and that you need to sort of make up for that intrinsic harm by then giving it away. You are not going to adopt it. Like I think everyone who does this, everyone who does this earn to give kind of strategy, on some level, it has managed to convince themselves that the way they're making money is not intrinsically harmful and right. might actually be a good thing. Right. Um, so I don't think you have people out there in the world who are saying, well, what I'm doing is bad, but I will make up for it by doing good things with the money that I earn. I think what you have is people out there in the world saying, what I'm doing is good and you know, my wonderful crypto utopia where everyone winds up dealing in cryptocurrency is ultimately going to be a good thing. And then on top of that good thing, I'm also going to take the money I make and make the world a better place that way too. And it's like a win-win. Right. I guess that's... That's what bigger picture kind of bothers me. It, it's like these guys that run these companies or found these companies talk about their philanthropy and like their side gigs doing good. But when you have a big 
company and you have employees and investors and backers, like your first priority should be doing the ethical and right thing with that business. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is and this is something that SBF has come out on Twitter a lot and said. It's like you know, my first priority is now is to my customers. My first priority is to get get my customers their money back. But the okay. fact is that the way that he was running the business and the way that he was taking enormous risks with his customers' money um, while he was running the business and the way that he grew by taking these huge risks was clear evidence that he didn't really believe that and that he you know and, and that like there was some other thing that he was maximizing beyond like the safety of his customers. Right. And and to be clear, like, I don't think like founding and, and running a company is like doing harm in the world. Like it could be a very good thing to, you know, invent something new, change people's lives, employ a lot of people, create jobs. That's all good stuff. Like, I guess I object to the use of altruism, philanthropy, whatever, as PR for yourself. I think I guess I'm just repeating right, myself. and that's do, and that's what he was talking about the, the shibboleth. First. Yeah, exactly. There's also a kind of line of rhetoric in in tech that doesn't really exist in other industries where everything you're doing ostensibly you're you're doing to make the world a better place or save the world or whatever. You never hear that coming from somebody who starts a private equity fund. <laughs> Or, or somebody in a different industry. You, you like would it. be surprised, actually. <laughs> I mean, like, seriously. I've never that, heard it. <laughs> no, well, go, we, you know. Listen grab, to Anna Shemansky from Old yeah, Slave Money. She's Exactly. Or, or listen <laughs> listen to, to, you know, Sebastian Malaby, who just has a whole, you know, just released a whole book basically talking about how, like, the entire wealth of the planet and the reason why we're so better, you know, so well off is is because of the amazing genius of Silicon Valley and venture capital. Like, these arguments do get made on a regular basis. Yeah, about tech and, you know, VC. I, I just don't, I can't think of another industry where, where people use that rhetoric as often as they do and about literally right. every single product they develop. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but there's a case to be made, right? That no matter how much money... You know, Larry Page and um, Sergey Brin give away that their impact on the world is always going to be like the fact that they created Google and creating yes. Google has made the world a measurably better place. Yes. In many ways. Yeah. I, I, I'm not saying that I, I don't think that tech companies can change the world for the positive. <laughs> I'm saying that, uh, you know, the, the rhetoric sort of goes from things like Google to uh, your casual gaming app that you spend you know, on the subway playing there, there's, it, right. it's so broad that it, it's almost meaningless now. But no, I think, I think to your point, like we have, we, part of the tech clash um, has been to put Silicon Valley a little bit on the back foot, a little bit on the defensive. Right. And it's no coincidence. I think that you see this uptick in, highly visible philanthropy from Silicon Valley, whether it's from someone like Dustin Moskovitz, someone like SBF, um, or or even, you know, someone like Vitalik Buterin, who who started Ethereum. Even CZ, the um, founder of Binance, has said he's going to give away 99% of his wealth, right? Like, they all say it. And they say it, I think, precisely because there is this tech clash and people don't believe that technology... Um, makes the world uh, is is necessarily something that makes the world a better place yeah, also you know uh, wealthy business people have been using philanthropy to launder sketchy business practices for centuries you know if you read all the Cherno books about jp morgan and andrew carnegie i mean this this is not a yeah i mean new... that it was that that's interesting right because it tends to be sequential mm-hmm. like you start off as a robber baron and then you become a philanthropist mm. or, or you know you start off like inventing dynamite and then you create the nobel prize so, whereas these ones, it's more simultaneous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe they're just more forward-looking. They they know it's coming. So, but but we should talk about the broader context here of you know corporate scandals and collapses because Emily, we've been talking about this quite a lot. There's been so many parallels. Yes, and what we have seen in previous collapses has been significant consequences um when enron collapsed we end up we ended up with like sarbanes oxley and a massive change to the way that public companies work yes. when 
um, Lehman Brothers collapsed. We ended up with Dodd Frank and a massive change to, to the way that global financial regulation worked, and like you know, and, and Basel III, which I still to this day maintain is by far the most important consequence of the financial crisis. Um, in in this case, there's a very interesting piece in in the FT this week, um, basically saying like the the best thing we can do in the light of the FTX collapse is let crypto crash and burn. Like let it burn down to the ground and go to zero. Because if you regulate it, that's just going to make people trust it more. And trusting crypto is just inherently a really bad idea. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've been waiting to see, is this, it seems like there are two kinds of corporate or financial collapses. There's like ones that change the laws, like the ones you mentioned, Felix, Lehman, Enron. Sometimes they also change the culture. I think both of those count for that too. And now with FTX, it seems like it's going to change the culture around crypto, maybe. Um, you know, not for the diehards and the true believers, but for the people that kind of went crazy with it for a time. And then the follow follow-on question is, does it change the regulation piece? And I hadn't heard that. They, that that's an interesting argument. Don't regulate it. Let it just fall apart. Um, because it was walled off enough that you don't need to. You don't. Exactly. No there's no. There's no real systemic effects. This is the most kind of the most so interesting thing to the collapse of FTX. Right? Is that obviously the equity investors in FTX? They're like venture funds. They often lose all of the money they invest in a company. If they lose all the money they invest in FTX, it's kind of no harm, no foul. You know, the biggest one was Sequoia. They're like, yeah, uh, that fund that invested in FTX is still up a gazillion percent. So like, we don't care. So those guys are fine. Um, the And then you have the people who had money on the FTX exchange and who lost money. And on some level, yeah, they were crypto speculators almost by definition. You don't trade on FTX unless you're a crypto speculator. Um, very few of them were, were anything other than that. And and they lose their money and they learn their lesson and some of them retreat out of crypto with their tails between their legs and crypto generally is down. And like this is a good opportunity to just let people realize how a completely unregulated parallel financial structure is broadly a very bad idea where people can lose their money. And coming in and trying to regulate it is just going to make people think, well, now it's regulated, they can have more confidence in it. Don't you think, though, there's going to be some policy demand for regulation now that, you know, these stories are, are sort of becoming more mainstream and people understand what's happening, uh, just because we're talking about retail investors? But I, I feel like we're not. I feel like the number of retail investors in FTX is tiny. That's what I was thinking, like, in the case of Enron, that company had 20,000 employees. They all lost their jobs. So did everyone at the accounting firm associated with that scandal, Arthur Anderson. All these people lost their jobs, and a lot of them lost their entire retirement savings, and they were all over the media. With Lehman Brothers, I mean, we all saw the pictures of the people leaving the offices with their boxes and whatnot, also at the same time, like the whole <clears throat> economy collapse, and a lot of people lost their homes, and it was very visible. And the pain for regular people was just, it was tangible and, and visible and widely publicized. And so far with this scandal, that is the element I really have yet to see. I mean, it's possible it's happening and I'm not seeing it, but. Yeah, I think it's it's too new. Like I think, and particularly if there's a contagion effect through the rest of the ecosystem, you're, I feel like those stories are going to come out. But like when Helium this or Celsius, one of these other um, crypto businesses went under recently, there was it was like an um, a lawsuit. There was a filing and a lot of people were quoted in there saying, you know, I lost my savings, this, that. But it didn't get the kind of attention I'm talking about with these other with these other financial collapses. And I think that's a big difference. So the the really big thing here is that if you lose money that you have put at risk, that's fine. If you lose money that you consider to be safe, then that's not fine. Yeah. Um, the thing that we consider to be safe is like my paycheck, right? I go into work every day at Enron and, and then one day I'm fired and what's more, Enron forced me to put my entire 401k into Enron stock. And so I've lost not only my paycheck, but also my 401k and that's terrible. And then on top of that, um, you know, 
there are these massive liabilities. So like, you know, people across California wound up paying thousands of extra dollars for energy because, because Enron was manipulating the energy market in California. And that's real harm done to real people with real money that they couldn't afford to lose. Yeah. Um, what we saw in Celsius was just a little baby hint of some people who were putting, you know, dollars into Celsius, and Celsius was promising a dollar return. They're like, we'll give you 15% return on your dollars. And they were going, oh, great, okay. And then it all evaporated, and they said, that's bad, and I've lost my life savings. But there were relatively few people who thought that crypto was a great way to just make interest on dollars, right? The reason why people get into crypto is because they want to get rich by buying coins that go up in value. That is, by definition, risk capital. We have seen Bitcoin and Ether and all the rest of them go up a lot and go down a lot. We know they're risky. Everyone who buys them knows that they're, knows that they're taking a risk. That is not like your life savings. That is not your reliable house. paycheck that you're putting at risk. It's certainly not your house. Exactly. The There's nothing sort of there's no sort of bait and switch in terms of we told you this was risk free and safe and then it turned out to be, you know, a house of cards. Um, you know, a little bit of that with Celsius, but you know, certainly not with FTX, which always, you know, or or generally the the crypto ads that we saw at the Super Bowl, you know, with Matt Damon saying like fortune favors the bold or whatever, right? <laughs> like the idea was go out and take risks, right? That was always the idea. And so long as people are going out and taking risks, the harm of those risks failing is much lower. So I made a list of other questions to ask so you can determine if your financial collapse has legs or not. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, and the one was, of course, does the scandal affect real people? Then does the scandal come right before a recession? Then that's good. You, your scandal has legs if there's a recession <laughs> to it. Um, does the scandal lead to books? That's a regular scandal. Everyone writes a book about everything now. So that doesn't really count. But does the scandal lead to a movie? That's a systemic scandal, probably, especially if it's, you know, a big hit movie. If you've got, um, I don't know. I don't know who the star would be. Maybe a Brad Pitt. Yeah. And... <laughs> yeah. Is there one, at least one colorful character that people know about uh, as a household name? Then you've got something with legs as well. Is SPF that colorful character? I'm not sure. I asked some like normal friends of mine and no one knew who he was. Michael Lewis has been embedded with SBF for six yes. months. I feel like that alone. And, and he's selling <laughs> yes. the movie, right? So there's going to be a movie. Yes. But not every Michael Lewis character becomes... Like not everyone is like a money ball. Like there are the, the Flash Boys. I don't think anyone. Yeah, like can, knows can that either one. of you name the CEO of IEX? No, no you can't. Right. So um, I think with FTX, we're kind of like some of these questions remain unanswered. We'll have to see to be determined if this if this thing you know goes far. I, I think also <laughs> it's just impossible to disentangle FTX from. Um, the broader crypto collapse, which has been going on for many months now. Mm. And it's pretty obvious that the proximate cause of the FTX collapse was the decline in crypto values, right? Mm -hmm. Alameda started taking directional bets. Um, they lost a lot of money that way. They also bailed out Voyager and lost a bunch of money that way. Um, people started pulling their their money out. And of course, that, you know, with any kind of bank run, that's always what causes the problem becomes self-fulfilling. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of this is not, you know, the FDX in that sense is maybe more of a symptom of the overextension and subsequent collapse of the crypto market than it is a major cause of it. Yes. and But that can be systemic. That's that's Lehman. Like, I guess that is also yeah. Lehman to some yeah. extent. Yeah. It's like this um, is a symptom, but and it also... The one we haven't that. mentioned is is LTCM, right? Which was the other big hedge fund that went bust. And that was very similar to Alameda in a way. It was taking like these bets. It, there was a lot of leverage in there. And then the thing we learned with LTCM was like, number one, when push comes to shove, there is the New York Fed and they will have an emergency meeting and they will try and make sure that the financial system can withstand the ripple effects of a major 
part of the hedge fund part of the economy like going bust, right? There is no New York Fed in crypto and that's hurting everyone right now. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing it did is it just reminded people of, you know, the importance of controls and risk management and all of those kind of things. And maybe FTX will do that. Maybe. Maybe like the anyone left in crypto will be a little bit more careful. But like, you know, this is one of these worlds where you make the way to maximize your success is by finding the friendliest offshore jurisdiction and taking as much risk as possible. So I just, you know, if you're competing against those guys, right, this is what all of the American crypto companies always complain about. They're like, we are competing with two hands tied behind our back, given all of this, you know, US regulation, everyone else in the Bahamas or Hong Kong or Dubai is going to eat our lunch and they do. And so it's it's basically impossible to have like a successful crypto exchange that is based in the United States because there is regulation here. Well, it's funny. There's, Binance has been making some noise about becoming a kind of pseudo-fed for crypto. And the idea is that they, they have a separate fund that's used to bail out companies like FTX, which to me just sounds ludicrous, but... Yeah, I mean, well, they looked at FTX for a hot minute and then gave up. It's, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing now is Genesis, which is Barry Silbert's, um, one of Barry Silbert's companies. There's there's this weird web of companies, Genesis, Digital Currency Group, GBTC, all of these kind of things. They seem to be having a lot of trouble right now. That trouble is feeding through into... Gemini, which is a different company, which is run by the Winklevi. And what we're beginning to see now is real ripple effects into the United States that up until the FTX US bankruptcy seemed like it was relatively ring-fenced and that if you had your money in an American crypto company, you were okay. Now it looks like a bunch of people who had their money in American crypto companies are not okay. Um, you know, Genesis is uh, suspended withdrawals and that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that could be the other next big shoe to drop is like the American retail investors get hurt again. Like these are American retail investors in crypto. These are not, you know, normal middle class people with life savings. But that could similarly just put off, you know, everyone off the entire asset class, which would not be a bad thing, to be clear. Yeah. Meanwhile, though, Bitcoin prices, I think, are holding up okay. Like I think. It's this stuff isn't going to go away, so it it probably should be more regulated in the United States at least, and maybe ultimately this stuff doesn't go away. People keep investing in it, although not at the scale we saw over the past couple of years. And you know, and and those global places that compete, they go under because they're not regulated, and it's kind of messy. Yeah, I just I just don't like the word investment here, right? The the word invest in, <laughs> investment kind of means that you're taking money and you're investing it into some project that pays some kind of returns. And you know, the best we can hope for in in that out in that kind of world that you're sketching out there mm -hmm. is that people take their dollars and they get hand them over to Coinbase or Robinhood or Cash App or one of those places that offers crypto, and they're like convert this into bitcoin and then they and then it gets converted into bitcoin or ether or whatever right mm -hmm. shiba inu coin and then what that's not an investment they're just sitting on a dumb coin right we had a whole season of, of slate money called slate money swag where we talked about these things you know wine gold art cars sneakers that kind of thing which people buy in the hope that they go up in value and you're like that's not an investment you know mm. that's that's just like you're you're speculating on collectibles and and like the and using the investment word for that as though you're actually there's some kind of intrinsic value i think is it's it's, it's so what are your, dangerous what are your criteria for something constituting an investment because i think of the, the early days of bitcoin and, and people would talk about it like that a little bit or, or you know as a hedge against inflation or you know some kind of proxy for well i mean it's clearly not a hedge against inflation you know yes. like the minute inflation well, arrives like it it falls off a cliff so. i'm saying this is the rationale that a lot of people used 
So how how do you distinguish between what you describe as, you know, something you put money into with the idea that it's going up but it's a collectible versus an investment, qua investment? Just cash flows. Like if, if you're investing in something that has future cash flows associated with it, then that's an investment. You're you're basically buying those future cash flows. If you buy a bond, then that will pay you interest in the future in principle. If you buy a stock, there will be like dividends in the future or, you know, at least there will at least you own something which, you know, makes money or loses money, but there are cash flows associated with it. Um if you buy a house, you can rent it out. These things count as investments. But Felix, isn't there so much of finance, even setting aside crypto, that isn't investments like you're saying? That's a lot of bets and and um, derivatives and things like that that aren't really right. investing in anything. So like, but yes, whatever. but that's my that, but that's my <laughs> but that's exactly my point, right? That people don't say I'm investing in derivatives, right? Okay, fine. Derivatives so it's just are semantics a semantics here. No, but it's important. It's a very important distinction. Is it? Derivatives are a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. If I just buy a pile of puts and calls, I will wind up losing my money in you know over the long term because you know mm. because there's no growth there. Like if the economy grows, the puts and calls don't do anything, right? They it's it's just a zero sum bet. Like I'm just gambling. making a zero sum. Gambling. Yeah, it's it's like going to my local weekly poker game. Mm-hmm. Like there's the money can slosh around from one person to another, but the total amount of money cannot grow. Mm-hmm. So that's not an investment. That's just a bet. Okay. It's not an investment, but it could still become part of the financial system long term, which is comprised of both investments and gambling that looks sophisticated. Well, the, the, idea, the idea behind sophisticated gambling is that it serves a purpose, right? You know, that if, you're, if you're a farmer and you're growing wheat and mm-hmm. you want to, you know, hedge against the right. wheat price falling, right. you buy one of right. those puts to make sure that you get paid off if the wheat price falls like the put is not is useful to you it has utility it's just it's just not the business you're in the business you're in is growing wheat gotcha we've never talked about my oil contract but that's okay that's my my gambling i guess my future what's your oil contract my futures trading it's is it my futures trading i just people who get oil um in the northeast where i am uh, you can you can like um, contract for a certain price that you agree to pay every month. And that's either a good deal or a bad deal. You know, the price of oil could come down and then I could look like my futures deal is bad or the price of oil could go up and I look like a genius. Right now I look like a genius, by the way. Um, You always look look like a genius to me, (laughs) Emily. Of course. Um, But yeah, so that I realized recently I was a futures Trader, yeah. not a futures you're, trader. Yeah, if you if you lock in a price today, you pay. You know, yeah. you're basically entering into a derivatives deal. Yeah, that's look what at I you, do. Emily Peck, derivatives dealer. Yep, tell your friends. Um, talking of geniuses, Emily, tell us why Joan Didion is in the news this week. I'll try. Um, the Joan Didion estate sale, Felix, is why Joan Didion is in the news this week. Her uh, stuff was sold at, at really high prices. Two sets of blank notebooks sold for $11,000 each. Um, her sunglass collection went for $27,000. No, no, no. That was just one pair of sunglasses. Oh, you're right. One. Pa- I'm sorry. One <laughs> pair of sunglasses went for $27,000. Um, it was this sort of beautifully curated estate sale that a lot of people were paying attention to. Explain to me, Elizabeth, why people would pay $7,000 for a bunch of shells and stones from the beach just because those shells and stones from the beach um, happen to belong to Joan Didion. And also tell me, what are you going to do with those shells and stones from the beach once you've bought them? Yeah, this is just pure sentimentality. This is people putting a value on a writer who I think throughout her life was deemed, you know, the, the sort of essence of cool and has an incredible body of work. So I don't think anybody's buying these things with the idea that they're going to appreciate or that they even need to be, you know, preserved for history. I think the kind of people who can afford to buy the shells and the pebbles for $10,000 are the people who are going to display it in their home somewhere and show it to people. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of them are probably aspiring writers or, you know, publishing adjacent 
I don't think that it's it's a kind of normal estate sale. It's really built around her legacy and, and the extent to which people feel strongly about her. Yeah. It's kind of like in Succession when one of the brothers buys Napoleon's penis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so and so yeah, but this is it. This is this is clearly a consumption good, right? And and we're coming to that time of the year when I'm going to be flying down to Miami and going to Art Basel Miami and appearing on a panel. And one of the things that we're going to talk about is art. You know, is it a consumption good or is it an investment? And it can be both. And we talked about this on the show with Julia Halperin and we kind of um, came up with a dividing line of $500,000. It's like below $500,000, it's a consumption good and above $500,000 and it starts to become an investment. Um, or at least something that you can expect to hold its value and that will go up or down in value, but you can always expect to resell somewhere. Um, In the case of Joan Didion, everything that sold, sold for significantly less than that $500,000 range. This is very much in the consumption good. No one, I think you're absolutely right, no one was, was buying those notebooks thinking... I'll be able to flip these notebooks to a future yeah. Joan Didion stand. Um, <laughs> and I think actually a lot of people really, you know, felt a bunch of tailwind just in the knowledge that the money would end up going to Joan Didion's favorite charities. You know, it was like, it was a charitable don- donation on some level. Meanwhile, um, I was, when we were reading stories for this segment, I was reminded of the Elizabeth Wurzel um, estate sale, which also happened recently. Elizabeth Wurzel's like a Gen X writer. She wrote, what's the book? Uh, Prozac Nation, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, in the 90s, it was a big bestseller. But then after that, um, she wasn't as successful as obviously as Joan Didion. And um, Corey Sika at New York Magazine went to her estate sale or watched the estate sale. And it was like the exact opposite of the, the Joan Didion estate sale, you know, things went for very little money. Um, her, her notebooks and pens and pencils was like $29 or something like that. Um, couldn't be more different. And I was thinking it's just sort of a signifier of how writers of Joan Didion's era and generation were perceived versus like our generation of writers. I I feel, I, I feel like it's actually much more a function of like who your executives are, right? Mm. Joan Didion was part of this very grand family with, you know, various different duns floating around. And and they did a very good job, as you say, of curating it, taking it to a relatively respectable auction house in, in Hudson, New York, getting a bunch of press around it, um, making it cool, making it notable. Whereas... Elizabeth Wurzel, you know, she was maybe kind of divorced. No one was entirely clear. She was kind of estranged from most of her family. No one was there kind of saying, like, we can make a thing out of this. And there was just a bunch of random bits and pieces that needed to get sold off, and they just wound up getting liquidated. And a lot of it is 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 marketing, frankly. Yeah, that's, so that's the point. It's all about marketing how much money any of this stuff gets and the way it looks at, at the, the day of the sale. And you just you just need to build up the hype, as Taylor Swift will tell you. Just make sure that you get everyone wanting to buy the same thing at the same time, and you can sell two million tickets in an hour. That's incredibly Gen X, then, for Elizabeth Wurzel, that she didn't, you know, um, commerce that her death wasn't commercialized and her estate sale wasn't commercialized. It's like. Sticking the finger to the man. I don't know. Yeah, I think some of her people around her were kind of pissed off that uh, it wasn't advertised because I think there were people who, you know, knew her who wanted to pick up some of her stuff and and they didn't know about it, which is kind of sad. That is sad. Sometimes uh, marketing is a good thing, right? Emily, do you want do you want your death to be commercialized? Is that is that how Um, you would like to go? Yeah. Yeah. I want my snow globe collection to be displayed prominently <laughs> and tastefully and fetch many hundreds of dollars. Just think, this isn't just any old snow globe collection. <laughs> it's Emily R. Peck's <laughs> snow globe collection, and that has to be worth something. Um, let's have a numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number this week? Uh, yeah, uh, 20%. And that's the amount it, the amount by which home sales in Florida have gone down, if you're looking at coastal estates where uh, 
the land is less than six foot above sea level. And this sort of points to people, you know, being climate refugees and deciding that particularly they're not going to retire down there uh, in places where those those houses might be affected by climate. But Florida housing generally has gone up. So this is the, the one trend that sort of points to climate change as a driver for uh, real estate shifts. Yeah, and I, I think you can't get insurance on those houses, too. Yeah, exactly. Getting insurance is almost impossible. Um, my number is also a price change number, but this one is positive. It's plus 23%, which is the amount that New York City taxi fares are going up. Um, if you hail a yellow cab in New York City, thanks to the Taxi and Limousine Commission, the fare you pay will be will now be 23 percent more than it was you know a week ago um this sounds like terrible inflation but it turns out that this is the first fair hike in a decade and i think that over the course of a decade probably it's worth it i do worry that this is going to be a little bit more of a death knell for yellow cabs though because people were seeking them out because they were so much cheaper so they were significantly cheaper than than uber and lyft and now they won't be anymore so people are more likely to revert to the apps i'm not a trend person but i like just hailing a cab it's super easy if you're in like manhattan um which i realize is only one small tiny place one big small i don't know anyway i, I can I like tell you as someone cabs. as someone who's <laughs> lived in manhattan for 25 years i can tell you that it has never been harder to hail a cab Every time I've been in, uh, fine. I don't want to argue about this. But you can. But no. But uh, no. Emily. Emily yeah. lives a charmed existence. I don't know. The and you past can. Few, you can hail yeah, cabs. Times. I've I've been able to hail cabs no problem, and I prefer it to like taking out my phone outside on the sidewalk and like fiddling around. It's so much easier to just like wave your hand at someone. What's your number? Uh oh, my number is sixty thousand. That is the approximate number of conduct train conductors and engineers who are voting as to whether or not to ratify a, a labor contract that was hammered out a few months ago by the Biden administration. Um, remember when we talked about a rail strike a while back? It still could happen. And on Monday, we'll learn if these 60,000 conductors and engineers voted in favor of this contract or not. And if even if it's not, then the prospect of a strike is back on the table. So uh, voting no doesn't mean you're voting for a strike, but it kind of makes a strike more likely? Yeah, so you vote no, and then usually you agree to some kind of like quiet period um, where you promise not to strike, and then that quiet period ends, and then you can go out on strike. It doesn't mean you're going to, but it it you can. And this is and this is just a single sort of overarching vote with all sixty thousand members, and they all get the same equal vote, and it's all like if whatever the majority chooses is what ends up happening. Oh no, it's really bananas because <laughs> there are, there are about a hundred thousand of these railroad workers, and they're in twelve different unions, which is crazy. Um, already three unions have voted no, but the two unions announcing their votes on Monday represent more than half of all the workers. So and so it would be two votes announced. Um, so they'd have to vote yes in a majority of each of the votes. And then if those two unions that represent the majority of the workers vote yes, mm -hmm. does that decrease the chances that like the three unions that voted no will wind up going on strike? Yeah, I think so. Got yes. Because there are Thank not you. that many workers. You're welcome. Thank you, Emily Peck, official labor market correspondent of both Axios and Slate Money. We could, that was very informative and helpful. <laughs> um, so we have a Slate Plus coming up on Elon Things and Twittery Things. Thank you very much to Anna Phillips for producing. Thank you for emailing us on slatemoney at slate.com. And we will be back next week with a fantastic Slate Money with our very favorite guest. All about money and class. All coming up. Tune in next Elizabeth, you have a theory about Twitter. What is your theory about Twitter? I'm not sure I have a, a theory specifically about Twitter, but it's interesting. You know, this week, 
Elon's most recent managerial decision was to give everybody an ultimatum uh, saying that if they were not prepared to be super hardcore as Twitter employees, that they could just leave. And he gave them a 5 p.m. Monday deadline. And not surprisingly, a lot of them just said, OK, I'm leaving. And so now the, the status of Twitter generally is is further imperiled. But what I, I find sort of interesting about this, and this goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier in the episode around uh, big public scandals, is that both Elon and SBF have somehow continued to post through all of this chaos. And so we're just watching these managerial decisions get made in real time. And, you know, uh, 10 years ago, I feel like uh, if you found out about a financial scandal, it would be because there was some reporting or a short seller would bring it up or a whistleblower or there would be some regulatory enforcement. And now you just watch SBF and Elon publicly announce exactly what they're doing uh, and probably against the advice of their lawyers. Yeah, I think that's that's really true. I mean, it changes the perception of the crisis, especially with Twitter, because I mean, to me, like when someone takes a company private or takes over a company, a lot of the stuff Elon Musk is doing does typically happen. I've been at companies that have gotten bought out or whatever, and a lot of people get fired and it's a little bit chaotic and there's a lot of angry people talking behind the back of the new owner, doing all the things that are happening out in public view now with Twitter. So I sort of wonder like Elon Musk gets a lot of criticism, but in a lot of ways he's just pulling out a playbook that is actually pretty typical and familiar in a lot of ways. But the difference is how it's just all out there in public and there's no trying to hide it or anything. I feel like it's worse. There, there's a, you know, he tweeted something last week about uh, firing all of the product people because he thought <laughs> the engineers could do everything. Oh and God. to me, that's that's uh, a sign that maybe he's he's out over his skis. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I, it I don't think you're going to get a lot of pushback if you <laughs> like, literally everyone agrees that he's, you know, I mean, like he's he's done an incredible job of destroying you know a huge part of the twitter infrastructure much more quickly than anyone anticipated um with massive negative consequences the exodus of advertisers and therefore of revenue has been way bigger than anyone anticipated he was like coming in to increase revenue and instead he has decreased revenue um the institutional knowledge has disappeared a lot of the, like just the important you know people keeping the lights on basically have left um, people are saying that Twitter's going to die and it's all his fault. And that is probably true on both counts. You think and, it's gonna die? And yeah, I, I do think I do think that this whole idea that 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 you tweet all of your everything that you're thinking as you're thinking it, um, is a very Elon thing. And it's kind of an SBF thing as well, but it's definitely an Elon thing. And he was you know, he's always loved that instant feedback he gets, that that dopamine hit he gets from having all of that interaction on Twitter. And and he might be killing the company, but boy, is he going out in a blaze of glory if he does. I think the problem is that he assumes everybody else uses Twitter exactly the way he uses Twitter. I think he has bigger problems than that. <laughs> um, but you don't think like some of it, some of this stuff is kind of normal stuff that's like dressed up no. in his no. nuttiness. No, there's there's nothing normal about what he's doing. Like, are there company? Are there people who buy companies and then fire people? Yes, but they normally like work out what who's doing what before they <laughs> fire people. I guess, but but and they, and, and, and they don't and they don't do the things where like the people who are most likely to be able to find another good job easily and therefore are the most valuable employees are the ones who you try and give the greatest incentive to leave. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but Twitter's still working as of this taping. It's still working, <laughs> That's right? That's true, but there's some, a... some of it is working. Some of it, like a lot of weird things are breaking. The two-factor authentication started breaking a lot this week. Um, I've definitely seen a bunch of tweets where I've tried to open things. I can't send things. I, he shut off 80% of the microservices without really knowing what they were. And so what's going to happen is, you know, the, the servers don't stop. So everything will keep chugging along and then things will break slowly and there won't be anybody to repair them. And that's how it'll and it, go and, down if it And does. it will happen quickly. Like these things, once they break, you know, those cracks get much bigger, much more quickly. You need to be able, you need to have the stuff to 
fix things as they break because yeah. once they're broken for a while, they become much harder to fix. Yeah, that sounds right. As a homeowner, I feel I feel what you're saying there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. Maybe it's just that human need for stability. I still am like, oh, it'll be fine. Even as like everything's – I'm like the dog with the fire behind me and the meme. I'm like, it's fine. This is fine. Like I can't believe that it's really going to go away because there's no good alternative. I'm not going back to uh, Facebook. As a veteran of GeoCities and MySpace and oh, Tumblr yeah. and whatever Aww. else, you know, I think I think we'll we'll be fine longer term. We'll, it'll just be another platform that emerges. If you say so, Elizabeth, I believe you. <laughs> Maybe you should run Twitter. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's it. That's it for Sleepers. <laughs>